This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guests are Syl and Eliza Reynolds. Syl and Eliza are a mother-daughter team set to change the dynamics between mothers and their teenage daughters. Syl is a therapist in private practice, specializing in family medicine, women's health, and eating disorders. Eliza currently attends Brown University, where she is studying developmental and social psychology, gender studies, political science, and nonfiction writing. With Sounds True, Syl and Eliza have created a new book, Mothering and Daughtering, Keeping Your Bond Strong Through the Teen Years. Through this pioneering book, Syl and Eliza are leading a revolution, smashing conventional wisdom on mothers and teenage daughters. This episode of Insights at the Edge was recorded with Syl and Eliza, both present in the Sounds True studio. In this episode, we talked about how to repair a mother-daughter bond, especially if during the teenage years, the mother and daughter find themselves deeply at odds with each other. We talked about the essential toolkit that one needs, both for effective mothering and effective daughtering. We also talked about the grief that can sometimes surface when we face our own disappointments about how we were or weren't mothered. And finally, we talked about what it means for a mother and a daughter at any age to keep it real. Here's my conversation with Syl and Eliza Reynolds. In your book, you both offer quite a few definitions that relate to mothering and daughtering. And I thought we'd start at the beginning, at the top, with a definition, your current working definition of, let's start with daughtering and then mothering. I mean, is daughtering a word you invented? You could say that, yeah. Daughtering is a new word, Um I will claim it for now, and I hope it takes a life of its own. Let's say that. Um, it's a word that I actually ask the girls that I work with to define with me. So it's become a work in progress. And But for the book, I have kind of slightly against my will and consciously nailed it down. Um, Let's hear it. Oh, God. Let's hear it. Um, daughtering is stepping out of passivity into an active role in your relationship with your mother. And it's balancing uh, responsible independence with a dependable bond during the teen years, specifically in this book, but also 
Okay, so there's that. a lot there. Let's let's exactly. break it down a little bit there's before we there. even move into yeah, the, the big topic of mothering here. So yeah. taking more responsibility, moving out of passivity, that's a pretty big idea right there. I mean, most people I think yeah. think of if you're a daughter, you're sort of receiving your mother's parenting style, for better or for worse. You're sort of on the receiving end, but you're turning it upside down a bit here. Well, yeah. I mean, that's been my experience. My experience is that most of the teenage girls that I know, work with, and even myself at times, which is really, this is a personal journey. I am a teenage daughter, um, live in a world of passivity in their relationship with their mother. It's eye rolls. It's exasperated sighs. It's, she'll never get me, so why try? And I don't believe that's good enough. I don't believe that's the answer. And I believe that not just for the mother and for the relationship, but I believe it for the life of a teenage girl. When you give up in that relationship, what are you learning? What are you putting into practice in almost every other relationship, important relationship in your life? You know, when I say step into, you know, your, your role as an agent of change really in your relationship, this is the learning ground. This is the pattern that's being set you know, whether it's, you know, unions or psychologists around the world would look at these, you know, primary relationships. But, you know, for me, as somebody who's not a hardcore psychologist, it's basic. It's I'm learning a pattern of relating and I'm learning to step into my own and own what I need and what I want and the active role I can play. Okay. But what would you say to a teenager who says, you know, how much impact can I really have on this relationship? My mom's the one who decides this, 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 Mm -hmm. this, this, you know, I'm not even driving a car yet, whatever. Obviously, I am in this passive one down role here. You're in a passive role in certain contexts. But the thing is, first of all, you are on a train that is headed straight to independence, whether I mean, in our culture, the clock's ticking, you know, mom has this role maybe right now, when I work with a 13-year-old or a 15-year-old, you hit 17, 18, 19, and that's very much not going to be the case. This is a time of transition. So it is true in peripheral ways, but what we see is we see so many girls demanding that despite the fact that mom has the car keys, I'm going to run the relationship in other ways. I'm going to close the door and I'm going to lock you out. And even if you make me keep my door open, I'm going to lock myself, my inner life down from you. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I'm talking about. So many mothering, daughtering books are focused on this very outer, outer, outer life. And I want to start on the inside. Mm-hmm. And I want to open that debate for teenage girls, that discussion for teenage girls. I think there's more being done around adults and women and mothering around that. And that's not really something that is part of a teenage girl's life. And that's really where I want the change to happen. You know, it's about the fact that even if your mother is shut down in a lot of ways or she's running the relationship in a lot of ways, you know, sometimes adults aren't adults in a lot of ways. There's a developmental gap that it's kind of the fate you've been handed, you know. You were born into this family, but you're on a journey, you know, and as you grow older, maybe you're able to realize that more. It's been a journey for me. What I knew at 13 is obviously a world of difference from now at 21, But that's been part of my journey, realizing what's my fate and what do I want my destiny to be? What's the choices I want to make? What am I going to do with this one life that's been handed to me? And part of that is asking my mom for a certain kind of relationship, learning what she can give, learning her limitations, learning she's an imperfect human. And, you know, I can pretty much say there's not many moms out there that if your teenage daughter comes to you and says, Mom, I want to talk to you about our relationship, who's going to go? 
no, let's not talk. Let's get in the car, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that there are so many mothers who are receptive to that and want something different, but don't know how to completely find it themselves. And that's where a teenage girl comes in. Okay, now you offered with this work-in-progress definition (laughs) sort of two parts to it. The first was this not being passive. Mm -hmm. But the second part had something to do with keeping the bond alive and being responsible in that. Can you tell me what you meant by that? Yeah, so there's this, really what I see is this is a paradox inherent to this teenage experience, but a teenage girl's relationship to her mother. And I kind of, in the definition, my working current definition, there's a juxtaposition of the independence and the dependence. And one of my favorite things my mom says is that healthy dependence creates independence. And so it's one of these balancing acts of, as a teenage girl, whether you put, I mean, you can toss whatever paradox you want into it, whether it's my mom mortifies me more than I could imagine anybody in the world, which is true. My mom embarrasses me sometimes, like, can't believe. And she loves me more unconditionally than anybody I could ever imagine. And so as a teenage girl, when I hit 14, 15, and I was feeling all this angst and this like, mom, oh my God, please please don't do that. You're irritating the heck out of me. I was also feeling such guilt for that. So it's finding this balance. Really, that's what the second part of the definition is about, is it's a really hard thing. Balance is hard in any level. But it's saying, okay, how do I find my independence? And how do I also make sure that I am using this dependence, this bond that I have, in a way that feeds my independence instead of hinders it? And finding this balance between the two, which can be very, very difficult. You know, because and that's the thing about the independence is I believe daughtering is fundamentally sometimes not that much about your mom. To be a teenage daughter is and to be a daughter really on the kind of the tail end of a matriline of a cycle of inheritance is to be living your own life and is to be growing, you know, is to be growing into your own self. And that's part of what the mother daughter relationship is. A mother daughter relationship specifically during the teen years is an adult and somebody who's not an adult, you know? And that dynamic should be that way for quite a while. That's a healthy, that's a healthy balance that needs to be found. And a mother who expects her daughter to be an adult, to feed her needs, that's where you have, you know, from a daughter's side, just way too much weight placed on that. Now, before we, yeah. leave, this <laughs> new, that. Before we leave this sort of new word in our vocabulary, yeah. so you've taken a noun and you've made it a verb. What, yes. do, you, what do you think about that? I love that. I mean, that's really where the, it started coming off. I was, I was, I was pissed. I was like, the moms have all of these words. They get to mother. Everybody knows what mothering is. In fact, everybody's debating it on every you know article, front page, whatever. And then there's all such a bad rap about teenage daughters and teen girls. You know, we're over emotional. We're shallow. We're you know, you name it. The negative. You know, we're bossy. Not leaders. We're bossy. You know, you. Have, there's all these adjectives that are assigned to teenage girls. We're this huge market. We're consumers, but not smart consumers. There's all these things about us. And yet, what do you expect of us? We don't have the words for it. We don't have the actions for it. So I want to build those actions. You know, if that word's not there, then let's find that word. Let's play with it. Let's define it. And let's own it for ourselves. And that's, you know, that's daughtering revolution. Welcome. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's switch for a moment yeah, to, to mothering. Now, yeah. this is a, a word that there are many, 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 many different definitions and what makes for good mothering. I'd like to hear from you. What do you think makes for good mothering? Well, Carl Jung was my inspiration here. And when he said the greatest burden on a child 
is the unlived life, uh, the unlived life of the parent. And when I read that a number of years ago, uh, it so inspired me in mother, my mothering role, uh, because it, 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 it's what I felt was missing in my daughtering role. Hmm. And it's so much what I wanted to provide for my daughter as I raised her. And so my definition is very simple. Raising your daughter to become herself. Now, I'm not saying I, you know, that anybody could do that, any human being, any mother could do that perfectly. And um, perfection is not something I'm going for or anyone should go for. It's not possible. But it's a practice for me as a mother, has been a practice, of continuing to watch and uh, this human being who's unfolding this beautiful human being, my daughter, who's unfolding before my very eyes and becoming her own unique person, this soul, this beautiful, unique soul. Who is she? And, and, and more and more trying to discover that rather than place my agenda or projections onto her, which mm-hmm. is, you know, really challenging. Yeah. That, uh, I mean, I, mothers will do that. That's, that's perfectly natural. Human beings do that. And... And yet it's been a sort of spiritual practice for me that that is my working mothering, my working definition for mothering is, oh, what a concept, raising her, not placing my unlived um, life on her, you know, really trying to make choices when, when I, you know, when we watch our children and we see who are they? And I, I could see that very young she was, she loved to dance around the kitchen and there happened to be this, um, beautiful world dance uh, company in our town. And uh, I really thought about that. It felt right. Like at three years old, four years old, they took these children into this wonderful community to learn dances from all over the world. And I had to really try to separate out what was my agenda, because what mother wouldn't delight in her daughter dancing and then performing? Sure. You know, and uh, potentially and could I? What I? And then to just intuit uh, my mother's intuition. Who's she? And bringing her there and getting this sense that yeah, this was this was some, a place where she could thrive in this community of dancers, and it really worked out. <laughs> she still dances to this day, and and it's her thing. Now this idea of supporting enabling your daughter to be herself, to be who she truly is, her true self. I'm curious, if you were going to create for mothers a type of portable toolbox that had their essential tools in it, and I don't just mean surface tools, I mean the actual deeply rooted realizations that would support that, what would be the essentials in the toolbox? Well, the essential would be that that mother knows who she is. That's a pretty big essential. (laughs) (laughs) And again, since that can't be done perfectly, um, and that is also a process, um, I just express a gentle urgency in the book that we mothers up our commitment to being the more conscious person in the relationship being the adult in the relationship, getting our psychological and emotional house in order as much as we can, 
not perfectly, because we'll make mistakes. In fact, it's important that we make mistakes um, as we mother, because um, that's part of life. And then we teach our daughters so much in our mistakes. We teach them about what it is to own up to um, our mistakes, to apologize for our mistakes, to um, have compassion for ourselves, to... um, it's, it's what we call the rupture and repair process in psychology. And so, uh, and yet, I feel that in the toolbox, if possible, be some kind of spiritual practice, um, psychological practice, where, which is not a burden to our mothering, but increases our consciousness as we mother. Sure. Now, let's just take a little aside here. Please. Because I know so mm-hmm. many women who had children because they didn't really know what to do with themselves. Mm. They weren't aware of this is who I am in my fullness. It was like more there's some kind of emptiness here and maybe some babies are going to help. Yeah. That seems like that would be uh, a difficult situation in terms of what you're describing as the number one essential mm. Well, my experience is uh, in in the with the hundreds of mothers and daughters I've worked with yeah. teaching workshops is that uh, often it's even if you go into that relationship unconsciously that it is a waking up and that it's never too late at any age. I mean, some mothers wake up and when their kids are adolescents and go, "Wow, I really need to get my act together in a way that I haven't before." Because uh, I'm being challenged and uh, I need to understand myself, my lineage, my psychological and emotional baggage so that I can parent this kid who's making huge demands of me right now. Mm -hmm. So uh, the tools can be a spiritual practice. Uh, Therapy was incredibly useful for me. Because I was able in therapy to complete my spectacularly incomplete adolescence, yeah, and uh, and did much of that even when Eliza was born, after she was born. It's not something you have to do before you have children, right? Have perfectly together, yeah. But it's it's certainly uh, teenagers up our game. Yeah. Um there's an urgency because the 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 hormones and the the brain biology are de- make way more demands of our children, of our adolescents and of us. So, um working getting the support we need as mothers. In, in the book I I refer to as our containers. Mm-hmm. You know, if we we contain our children through healthy boundaries, and we protect them in ways that are appropriate. Well, we too as mothers need that healthy containment, whether it's in relationships we're in, in therapy, in um, a spiritual practice, time in nature. We need to be restored. Our reserves need to be um, regularly filled up so that we can be available as the relatively balanced, mature adult in the relationship. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. You're going right for the root if you will, which is a mother's relationship with herself as the most important starting point for the mothering relationship. Yes, yes. And I found that in my work, my inner work, I learned literally with the help of therapy and and other ways 
to mother myself, to contain and mirror myself. These are two of the the key um, approaches in, in the mothering and daughtering approaches, the mirroring and the containing. And I've mentioned the containing and the mirroring is literally seeing soul. and But we can also see soul in ourselves. Mm. So we... Um, Peggy O'Malloran, who the Mothering Magazine um, author, um, editor, uh, had, had a wonderful quote saying, uh, the way we talk to our children becomes our inner voice. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That is so powerful. And so, so in the ways that I've inherited negative self-talk, I, my urgency as a mother was to treat myself with more compassion and kindness and acceptance, sort of raise myself to become myself Yeah. in order there, for there to be um, a greater um, freedom for Eliza to be who she is. Now, I think I understand a little bit about containment in the mother-daughter relationship, but tell me a little bit more about how mirroring plays out specifically in the mothering of your daughter? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, a mirror, I mean, certainly if you, if you know the Snow White uh, story, uh, there is, this is the, the, the symbol of the narcissistic uh, mother and who is um, the stepmother. But eventually it's this clear mirror that... Uh, mirrors the truth to Snow White, which is she is the most beautiful of them all or the fairest of them all. And I like to say that in that myth, uh, that is the positive mother's reflection of, of her daughter to a mother who is at home in her body and at home in herself and has reflected her own beauty to herself. She then becomes a clear mirror for her daughter. And her daughter is... Is is beautiful to her. Is there's no threat. There's, there's her daughter's not at her agenda or her extension. Mm. And so I see clear mirroring, as uh, not perfect mirroring, but a, a, a mirroring where I can see Eliza and look at Eliza and see her as separate from me, and um, reflect as a mother reflect back to her her beauty. So sometimes that's literally through words, and in, in in an everyday way, it can be, oh, you know, the way I noticed the way that you um, did that job. That was really that was really thoughtful of you to do it that way. So so that she begins to get a sense of who she is. I mean, it, well, I, mean I think she begin, you begin to hear that to hear that reflected back to you in a kind of accurate way to somebody, I mean, at a basic level, it's somebody they noticed that you did that yeah. or that this is what they see in you and that they've acknowledged that or mentioned that. But it also comes out, I think, in a day-to-day way in communication. Um, and it, has, it plays a huge role in a mother-daughter communication, but really any communication is that when you speak to somebody, you want to be heard for, first of all, for what you said. Mm-hmm. And there's almost... Almost nothing so frustrating as feeling like the communication got stunted because they just didn't even have the time to hear what you had to say. They got onto what they had to say. Yeah. And mirroring in a basic everyday communication way is when I have something to say, my mom is there to listen to it. And the first thing she does 
before she goes off to deal with a situation, even if, you know, she's multitasking, as most mothers are, with five things flying around. So, honey, I'm, I think what I'm hearing you say is this. You felt this way today, or when I did that, you felt this. And just that mirroring, that getting, it can be a very day-to-day thing, I think, which is such a fundamental skill, you know? Through her showing me what mirroring is, I can mirror my friends, mm. you know? I, it's, a, it's a skill of a, an emotionally intelligent person. Mm. Mm. You know, I notice so much, so many people who weren't seen and heard in their family and how that's a wound they carry over into their adult life. Yeah. Maybe it's in the workplace. I mean, that's where I see it so often, which is, you know, will they be seen or heard by their boss or manager or whatever? And it's such a wound people carry because they weren't mirrored. Yeah, they weren't seen, you know, at the most basic level. I think that's all. This is why this mothering uh, practice is so universal. You don't have to be a mother or be a daughter. It's being a human. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's the most fundamental, I think, longing is to be seen for who we are unconditionally. Yeah. Yeah. So, Eliza, I yeah. want to switch to the daughtering toolkit. <laughs> the daughtering toolkit. Our kit. little toolbox that has the essentials in it for the daughter who wants yeah. to engage in responsible daughtering through the teen years. Who wants to engage in responsible daughtering. Well, that's the first step. Does she want to engage in responsible <laughs> daughtering? That's the first journey. Because, honestly, I mean, we teach workshops together. That's how we first began our work. Yeah. When I was about 16, and it's been a little bit of a journey since then, but three-quarters of the daughters who show up my workshop will tell me straight up, I don't want to be here. My mom packed my suitcase, um, and I can't believe I'm missing my friend's birthday party. Fair enough. You know what? I'm like, straight on. Okay, well, you know, if you think that's so desperately uncool that, you know, you're hanging out with your mom for a weekend or even reading a book about, you know, your relationship with your mom— Imagine writing one, sweetheart. Oh, I was cool in high school. Um, But, well, first of all, I mean, I think to have a daughter access this essential daughtering toolkit, there's a level of engagement that needs to happen. And so fundamentally, you know, to even get the key into the daughtering toolkit, the daughter needs to realize, one, if she has a good relationship with her mom, life is going to be so much easier Hmm. just like just purely practical just like practical yeah like let's talk about logistics here yeah and then i mean emotional baggage is the whole next one but like whoa what if in this kind of crazy scenario you could imagine that your mom instead of being your kind of greatest enemy during the teen years you're always pushing up against she never lets you do what you want to do could be your greatest ally like a support system Somebody who had your back, and when you disagreed, you disagreed, and you talked about it, and you figured it out, and you knew she had your back, and when she made a boundary, you respected that, maybe after a little push, because I always pushed, but you saw, wow, I bet she knows what she's doing when she's holding that boundary. I bet she knows that if I go and hang out with my friends tonight, I'm going to collapse, and I'm going to be a wreck tomorrow, and, you know, yada, yada, the situation unfolds. So the first step is just, and I say this to girls all the time, get smart. Get smart. It's in your interest. At a certain point, it's not about what mommy lovely would love to have you snuggle in her arms and be best friends. Yeah. It's about 
this is for you. It's going to make it not only so much easier, but we see time and time again, I mean, and teenage girls are totally conscious enough to realize this, that having a troubled or difficult or hateful relationship with your mom, that's something you carry on. Mm -hmm. That doesn't leave you when you leave your mom's house. That is... That is deep level stuff. Mm-hmm. And you can see, we see that the world round. So part of it is just let's help the girls with their new budding consciousness, which is so beautiful to behold. Let's channel it to the place where they're in the place to look and examine their own relationships. Because mostly there's nobody asking them these questions. There's nobody saying, hey, pause. Let's just pause. Because sometimes it's just a pause button. Let's pause. Let's examine girl culture. Let's pause and say, what and then wait to see what answers inside. Because so often, what you see, the same girls who came to that workshop, arms crossed, refusing to make eye contact, not even touching mom. Are you kidding me? She's like disease right next door, you know? Leave with, I mean, begging mom, can we stay after lunch? Do you think they need help taking down after the workshop? We could stay and help. Like, so mm. eager to be in that energy and to be in that place, to be in this bubble where they're allowed to be this way with their mom. It's like we give them permission in the workshop. It becomes the new norm. The new norm <laughs> that mothers and daughters actually love each other. And yeah. it, it's really touching. It's just infectious. And within hours, it's just everybody's caught it. <laughs> and everybody remembers that this is the only thing that matters. And it, it, the bond is so retrievable. It's just below the surface, the longing and the love. And, and uh, the girls respond. And, uh, but, it, uh, yeah, but the thing I would add is that it doesn't mean that there isn't tension, you know, where teenage years are infamous for it. But there's a, there is a world of difference between tension and rejection. Mm-hmm. And tension is necessary. It's healthy. I mean, my mom said before, the psychological model of a rupture and repair, we need ruptures. If we don't have ruptures, we don't learn how to repair. Mm -hmm. And with each repair, we grow stronger. The bond gets stronger. You know, it's like there's never, there's never, you know, no use crying over a rupture. Go learn how to repair. Repair, repair, repair. But the mother's got to lead the way. Hmm. If she doesn't know about ruptures and if she doesn't know about repairs... It's the blind leading the blind mother leading the blind daughter. So even if a, a daughter is strong in these daughtering skills, it's really the mother that has to lead this rapprochement or whatever you want to call it. This, yeah, uh, you know, it's it's it, it really is. Uh, 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 we see incredibly resilient daughters who do who do well over time. Well, I'd say you're one of them. Let's start there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know lots of resilient daughters uh, who've been in a lot of therapy and yeah. and healed. And, and become um, their own mothers, so to speak. But um, in terms of our, our work with mothers and adolescent daughters, it's really um, giving mothers the permission to step in and do what they know how to do. I feel that most mothers instinctively really do know how to mother well and that in, their mother's intuition is kind of dormant. In the book, I talk a lot about how to find that intuition again and to trust it. Our culture absolutely does not um, teach or reinforce that fine sensibility, that skill. And so 
if that's not there, it's really hard for mothers to feel grounded in themselves in their mothering. But let's say a, a woman is listening to this who has a teenage daughter and they're distanced from each other right now. Mm-hmm. It's difficult. They've yes. been arguing and fighting about X, Y, and Z, and there's a feeling that they're sort of in opposite mm-hmm. camps. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that mother? She has to lead the way here in the healing of the bond. What are your suggestions to her? Well, they're twofold. One is that I often see that the problem lies in peer orientation. We're attachment creatures, and we're, we orient towards one way or the other, primarily. And so like the duck coming out of the the egg, if the mother duckling's not there, who does that duck follow? We're attachment creatures. And um, there's a lot of uh, pure orientation now in our culture, more even than when I was a teenager. You mean pure orientation, meaning I'm going to spend my time with my friends on Facebook or whatever, and mom, your old news, get out of here. That's right. More and more. I think I get it. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, more than ever. Yeah. Um, and well, and to intensity, you know, I think there's a difference when you say pure orientation through attachment. You're looking at not only are these my friends who I love and want to hang out with all the time, but this is where I get my the stuff I need, the, the deep stuff, the advice, or the I support. try to, and 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 this is where I take my cues. And um, a pure culture is not a, a mature culture. It's a wonderful culture. It's rich and creative, but it's not dependable. And so number one is when I'm working with a mother who's, um, who is – her relationship with her teenage daughter is quite severed or distant. I'd want to look at – diagnose it almost and say, OK, what's the issue here? Is, it, is she hanging out a lot – actually too much I would say – Probably with uh, online um, in her uh, with her peer group. I have nothing wrong with friends, but if when that becomes way more than family, there's a problem in my, in my opinion. And so, what I often talk about is mothers retrieving their daughters, mm-hmm. and the retrieval sometimes even happens in our weekend workshops. But you don't need to come to our workshop to have that. But I do recommend time away, unplugged, in nature. Uh, at a retreat, on a vacation, have the daughter involved in choosing the place. Uh, she, okay, so let's just say the daughter says, like, you know, basically no way. I mean, no way. I'm busy, and that doesn't sound like fun, and no. I would say to the mother, who's in charge here? And I would recommend that she be in charge and that her daughter needs help and that while she's still living in her house, she needs to retrieve her daughter and get her back. And I've seen again and again and again when I recommend this in my therapy practice, in the workshops that I lead, that um, the mother recovers the daughter, sort of like Demeter recovering Persephone from the underworld. Mm-hmm. And uh, that there needs to be a de- determination um, and there's a methodical way to actually bring your daughter home, back to the bond that she deserves and needs. So, even so if what, she's... Is, what is that methodical way? Well, the methodical way is getting away for sure, un- and, and sometimes for a week. And literally, your daughter might be kicking and screaming, and that could be the degree of the problem. But knowing and trusting, I know any mother who is trusting her mother's intuition knows that her daughter needs her and needs her more than her peers and more than Facebook and more than the culture at large, 
that that fundamental bond is what her daughter needs uh, in relationship and that that security and that um, connection. So it's just a take a little bit of a tangent here, which is I think it's interesting that it's not completely apparent to many mothers that having a peer orientation is a problem. Yeah. How did that happen, do you think? I don't know. And I have to um, uh, say that it's Dr. Gordon Newfeld out of Canada who has really brought this to the attention of most of us that are working in the parenting sphere. It's he really first named it about 10 years ago. And it's, it's starting to really catch on this notion that, um, and there's a lot of research that's backing up the increased teen suicides, the bullying, the eating disorders, that um, in the places where there's more peer orientation, sort of the Lord of the Flies um, kind of situations, um, there's much more chaos. And the adults in charge, not mentoring and leading and guiding um, responsibly, whether they're educators, parents, grandparents, aunties, um, whatever. And the culture at large has become less and less focused towards the village raising the child. Mm -hmm. And really, when we're talking about that idiom, the village raising the child, it's really about an attachment village where all the adults know each other and everybody's watching out for everyone else. When the Tiger Mother book came out and um, people were criticizing that mode of mothering. I actually wasn't that critical of the of the tiger mother part because she was right in the middle of her kid's life, her daughter's lives. And I thought, cool, okay, they're close. Um, I was, I, I had more of a problem with the values that were being taught in that house and the extreme commitment to A plus, A plus, you know, Carnegie Hall. How, you know, whatever. I mean, every family's got to do what they got to do. And I'm loath to criticize other mothers. But Peter Singer came up with this article about elephant mothers at that time. And this whole notion of that we're more like elephant mothers than we are like tiger mothers, us human beings. And the elephants um, raise all the children. There's like a daycare center. And when you see an elephant herds, that they're watching out. And I think that's the, that's the original mammal's attachment village. Um, and that um, there's a if it, I think that our culture has gotten so far away from that. And so it doesn't occur to a mother necessarily that there's something wrong. And um, more and more, um, I'm happy to say, more and more people in the parenting community are alerted to the, to the problem of kids raising kids. Okay, so you said there were two main things that you would say <laughs> to a mother who would be troubled, potentially, in this moment by the distance between I'd, yeah. and child. So the first was... To learn about peer orientation. Yeah, and kind of take back your role as the central adult Exactly. To, to assert, you know, that kids don't come in the back door for the parties. They come in the front door and shake your hand and you look in their eyes that, that, that all generations stay connected. You know, when we raised Eliza, the kids that came over knew that we were part of the package. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, it, not that Eliza didn't go off and party in the house, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, they came around. We were flipping the burgers and the kids were all around. It was part of a village, and she tended to gravitate towards other kids who were close with their parents, mm-hmm. you know. And, and it, it just, you know, it felt it, it, you got so much, didn't you, from the adults that were 
in your life. Absolutely. I mean, I call them my aunts and uncles. I mean, I'm also a single child. So uh, for me, I was also taking in siblings and family and families come to me in a very wide circle in a lot of ways, which is a blessing. But through having these other adults really involved in my lives, I mean, it so happened that some of my best childhood friends, their parents, I mean, to see their lives, to be let in, not only as an, okay, they're an adult, that's their job, that's great, but to be let into their inner lives through a real relationship with them just expands my, not only my worldview, but the potential for my own inner journey. You know, when I hear, I mean, I have so many models in the world because, you know, my, my best friend's mom, Barbara, or Jean, or Gina, you know, or Francie, I mean, the endless, endless men and women who have shared with me a piece of their real selves. Yeah. And I go to their house to hang out with their parents just as much as with my friends, you yeah. know? It's like, that's such a gift. Yeah. That's such a gift. Now, was there a second point? That the second thing was <laughs> yeah. to get away with your daughter, period. Okay. No matter what. Yeah. Whatever it takes. And that what will happen is, depending on the degree of the problem, meaning the degree of the separation or the severing of the bond, the bond is there, but it needs to be re- recovered. And so that means... The ideal thing would be to get away, go camping in nature. And, you know, your daughter might be kicking and screaming. You might be hiking through the woods and she's 10 feet ahead of you. But I promise you that over time you hang in there. By the end of that week, you guys will be have talked things through. You'll be sleeping in, you know... Um, in this, in sleeping bags next to each other, and you will get there and and be walking um, by each other again and finding each other again because that's what mammals do. We um, thrive on relationship and on connection, and it's what we do naturally. So it would be natural if we could just trust our instincts. When I give mothers permission to do this in our workshops, they just go, thank you, thank you, because that's what they suspect that their daughter needs. But they're they're being told by the culture at large or by their parents, oh, you're just too close. You're just too attached. She's always, you're holding hands too much. And I just... I wanted to talk about that, actually, the holding hands thing, because I noticed that both of you are here in the Sounds True studio, live and in person. (laughs) I've watched that you're very touchy-feely with each other. (laughs) You hold hands, you lock arms when you're talking, and, you know, I I guess it it does seem a little unusual to me. It moves me. I think it's quite beautiful, but it does seem unusual, and I wonder what you think that is, that in our world at this time, that would be considered unusual? Well, first of all, I think we're pretty touchy-feely people. People are on a spectrum. I mean, I think at a certain level, we all want some mammal touch, and that's pretty basic. I think people show their love in different ways, you know, and somebody doesn't need to wrap themselves around their mom. They just need her to look in their eyes, and they know. You know, it's like saying, I love you. You know, I say, I love you to my mom by grabbing her hand, and that's my language. It's it comes easily to me. It feeds me. Um, I think, for first of all, the mother-daughter relationship is really certainly not a cool one during the teen years. So any public evidence of that, or PDA <laughs> as you would, is generally you know frowned upon. Um, independence is such a celebrated thing. Independence, early independence. You know, it's rugged individualism, etc. That the faster you separate, the farther you go to college, the whatever it is, is 
sometimes perversely valued. You know, the child's desire to leave the nest is in a weird way valued over their desire for closeness. And what a twisted thing that it would, that, you know, even though your heart or your body might be shrieking like, ouch, no, you know, you're saying, oh, yeah, and it's not a problem, yeah. No, I, I hardly go home anymore. I don't need to see my parents, yeah. It's, you know, and it's, it's, it is a head, bu- it's a, it's a, it's a mind tragedy. body yeah. disconnect, I think, in a lot of ways. It's a great tragedy. The, 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 uh, the culture's absolute, uh, seemingly absolute, uh, concern with independence. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think the myth of maturity. <laughs> Uh, we were just we, we need each other yeah you're listening to insights at the edge produced by sounds true sounds true hosts an annual wake-up festival a five-day experience of transformation held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. This is a gathering of spiritual teachers, artists, poets, and anyone interested in the many faces of awakening. For more information about the Wake Up Festival, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash wake up. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, I'm going to take this moment to go a little confessional for a moment, which is what I notice being with the two of you. And I'm curious if you've seen this come up in the workshops that you teach and how how you work with it, is that one thing that can be evoked, and I feel it in me, is a sense of loss or grief about what I didn't have when I was growing up, the missing pieces in my own bonding and attachment and how difficult it was to be myself and moved more towards rejection than healthy tension. So when you talk to people, and just by being around you and certainly by reading your new book, Mothering and Daughtering, I actually think there will be many people who will grieve their own teenage years, their own experience with their mom as they tune into your relationship and yeah. your work, what would you say to those people? Um, I would I would say to them that um, I'm not surprised that uh, they that it gets them in touch with that feeling. Um, that uh, I would hope that on the mothering side, especially, that they will see that I have. Uh, talked in depth about my own relationship with my mother and my own mother wound and uh, how it's never totally healed and how, I, how I've lived with that and in my life and how literally my work has become, has grown out <laughs> of my mother wound. And uh, that I hope that they'll find inspiration and guidance in not only feeling these feelings, mourning what they didn't have, I still mourn what I didn't have. There's a part of the book where I I say that um, it's 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 humbling 
that in, in, when I'm with my mother still, I revert uh, to an earlier adolescent behavior, that I still, um, at 55, expect and hope that she'll approve. There's a girlish part of me that, that feels crushed when she doesn't approve of my life choices. And so I'm, I'm still working with it, um, absolutely. Uh, on the other hand, I have made great headway, and a lot of my side of the book is about the ways in my work with Marion Woodman and have, have really healed much of the pain and blame that I've projected onto my mother and have created not just freedom for my daughter um, to experience her own life and to be her own self, but absolutely have that for me as well. But mm-hmm. it is. It's a, you can't get away from it, Tammy. It's, it feels um, like a great wound of our time mm. uh, because we are living in patriarchy, and patriarchy is um, a system that um, values masculine um, strengths and attributes over feminine. And this is not about gender. Mm-hmm. And so mothering and mothers and women um, particular are carrying um, a certain kind of burden um, and um, a certain kind of self-loathing um, that if they don't work it through themselves, they're going to be projecting it onto their daughters. So it gets or feel threatened by yeah. their daughters' um, yeah. um, freedoms and, and successes. Yeah, does that make sense? It does make sense. Mm-hmm. Now, the way that you've written the book together is uh, quite innovative. I've never seen this <laughs> done before. You each write half of the book, and then you meet in the middle where you share a chapter. And, Eliza, in your section, you made a couple of comments that I thought were just brilliant, quite Why, honestly. <laughs> and I thought you could Please do tell on me which ones. Okay, yeah. One of the... One of the comments you make in the section on daughtering is that we can realize what we are internalizing from our mother and choose the pieces that we want to inherit. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, because I think sometimes people think like, well, obviously I'm going to inherit my mom's, you know, tendency towards overeating or yeah. being over-controlling or this or that. I just happened to pick those off the top of my head. Yeah, they're real ones. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but, uh, so, so what do you mean that you can choose what you inherit? Uh, yeah, it's a big one. Um, it comes with consciousness, which is one of the most exciting awakenings of the teen years, which is why we're able to start to talk about this. And it's a journey that continues you know, from that time onwards. It's forever. You know, This is welcome to day one. It's kind of what I say to these girls. It's like, okay, welcome. You've arrived at this this journey. In a certain sense, this is an initiation of you are beginning this journey. I mean, you'll get to those points whenever you get to those points, but this is the journey. And inheritance yeah. and being conscious of that is one really big part of it. So it's actually work that I do with the girls. We can start at a very basic level. I have the, I'll have the girls, for example, identify, you know, two things that they really love that their mom does, that they want to consciously you know, uh, grow in themselves, protect in themselves, or be more conscious of in themselves. And two things that they also don't want to inherit. And so that can come, I mean, girls can go at different levels with that, you know. Oh, my mom is so messy. I want to be better at being organized. Or, you know, my mom 
is so sad around her body. She looks in the mirror in the morning and she always says like two or three things she like hates about it. And it's just like the worst way to start the day. And I want to try to start the day in the opposite way. I want to try that. You don't have any sense that we're destined to inherit things from our mother that we might not choose to inherit. I think we're destined to grapple with them. And we can be unconscious and they can, we can carry them. It's like the invisible suitcases we're lugging around, you know, tied to our tushies. Or <laughs> we can say, okay, this is my journey. And, you know, using, as I'll say, a mother word, you know, this is my soul's journey. This is the piece I was handed. And this is what I'm going to work with. And it doesn't need to rule my life. It, it's, it's likely going to be part of my life. And it's likely going to be a really big part of my life. Mm. But especially if you start looking at it early, you know, it's like during the teen years, think, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of adult listeners as well, thinking back to the teen years of like, if I had started to awaken then, what could that have meant for me? Mm. And that's the kind of question, the kind of spark I want this book and I want my work and I want this work to ignite in teenage girls. Okay. Another comment that I thought was brilliant from the daughter <laughs> section is accept the fact that your mom is just another person. <laughs> That's a scary one, isn't it? It's a big revelation. I find that one, I mean, I found that terrifying, honestly. It's like a deep level in your gut fear. It's like, oh my goodness. And um, a few years later down the road, it's one of the most freeing realizations I've ever had. So it's, I mean, I think initially it's, it's one of the fears you realize when you enter into the teen years. And I kind of, one of the ways I describe it is it's like, it's almost like in The Wizard of Oz when you pull back the curtain and it's just this guy back there. And in the, your childhood imagination, there's been all these puppetries flying across the sky. And suddenly you realize, and sometimes it's devastating and sometimes it's a relief that, oh my God, it's like, not only does my mom make mistakes, which has kind of been part of the process, but, like, she is a work in process. She is a human. And she's on her own journey. Oh, my gosh. Like, you can see, you can know cognitively that, okay, my mom was a teenage girl. And then to know it on a deeper level, like, whoa, my mom was, like, where I am now. You know, look how far she's come. Or look what she's still working with. Mm-hmm. Wow. And finding a an empathy or hopefully later on a compassion, but it's an empathy for now because it's such a personal thing for my mom's own pain, for her loss, for her grieving, for the things that piss her off, you know, being able to start to understand pieces of that and my own reactions to them or not is a huge part of what it means to look at my own inheritance is to feel for her a little bit, even if I choose not to take it on, you know, my mom took on a lot of body weight, body image weight around that in her relationship with her mom. And I, you know, I can see that dynamic. I can feel sadness for that. And I can also go, wow, okay, I'm going to have my own body stuff, but it's more mine than hers. Mm-hmm. And I'm, okay, I can hold the picture. And sometimes it takes a while for our brain developmentally to get to a place where you can hold the picture. But during the teenage years, that can start, I think. Now, you you both talk about, in different ways, about the period of adolescence being a type of birth, if you will. Yeah. Type of 
initiatory phase in life and really the, the birth of something new. So what's being birthed in adolescence? <laughs> well, a new status, a new, you know, with initiation and indigenous cultures, certainly, um, if there was a celebration or a ritual in adolescence, really you were marking that um, a child was becoming a, an adult or making that transition. So although adolescence is sometimes set, called a whole decade from 10 to 20, really the very intense physiological changes that are happening with a girl and when she gets her period and everything are happen with a, in a three- or four-year period. And she becomes girl to woman. And that is so dramatic. And so it's a, it's a different status in the village. Mm. And, and, our, and, and Eliza and I both feel that that... Um, though it's been marked traditionally in indigenous cultures, it's it's just not marked in our culture. And we talk about that a lot. I think in the it's book. so lost. It's I mean and so therefore you see teenage girls and teenage boys Who am I? Well well running all over the place seeking initiations unconsciously, you know. What's a tattoo and a piercing? Come on now. You mm-hmm. know we metaphors abound, but I think it's one of the biggest tragedies is that there isn't this initiation. There isn't a acknowledgement, which is, I think, often what a teenage girl is seeking in her pushback and her relationship with her mom is acknowledge that I am older. Yes. Acknowledge. Mm-hmm. I'm different now. As an elder mother, reflect back to me who I am mm-hmm. and who I am becoming. Please honor that. Mm-hmm. And without that structure or that tradition, uh, it's, it's pretty hard. And then what happens is that sometimes initiations become diets or, you know, shopping. And I don't have a problem with shopping. I like to shop. But, you know, there's women, um, girls kind of get initiated into the women's club by saying, sorry, I'm on a diet or... I hate my body. I'm one of the club. Welcome. Hmm. And we, (laughs) we, we know that there are way more profound ways of... Uh, acknowledging soul. I mean, I'm all about ritual. What is ritual but a great party sometimes? You know, a celebration is a ritual. Um, Whether it's when a girl gets her period for the first time or way down the road, you can celebrate your coming of age whenever, you know? Like, that that open period, that time for celebration of you and your authentic self doesn't end. There's not like a, a closing part. You have to get it in before. Even a sweet 16 party can be profound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, more often, unfortunately, you know, with as reality TV has swept that one away, you know. Um, and we're in Jewish culture, you have a bat mitzvah or a bar mitzvah, but so often the ones, a lot of my Jewish friends have gone to their bat mitzvahs and so much it's about the money that they got sure. instead of who the individual is or is becoming. And so I think for me, you know, when I think of initiations or I think of coming of age in adolescence, it's become much more about the inner life for me and kind of the inner journey, because I think that's something that we can still be conscious of and still mark that transition. As I said, the opening of those curtains, kind of a dramatic opening onto the landscape of like, whoa, holy crap, Hmm. you know, and marking that, you know, and I think a mother's or parents or mentors can play a huge role in that, whether it's the kind of discussions they have, acknowledging them more in an adult way, if the kid, you know, and sometimes, you know, for example, when I got my period, my mom, I was 14 years old, 
a few years after most of my parents, my friends and my mom, you know, we've been kind of like counting down to the day. Um, I was actually thrilled, which is a pretty unique scenario. I was like, can't wait. My best friend had had it for two years, so I was well prepared. And uh, my mom said, do you want a party? Well, invite all of your friends, all the women's circle. And I looked like her, looked at her like she was crazy. Yeah, sure. I was like, are you kidding me? Now, the flip side of that is I had a really good friend who had a party like that. And the women in her life, her dance teacher, her grandmother, and I was there. I was one of the young girls, hadn't gotten my period there. And we sat in a circle and everybody just said, you know, we had, I think we had, you know, chocolate ice cream and roses. And we said something we saw in her that was beautiful. And I mean, something clicked on in my brain that day, even though I didn't want that. That wasn't what I wanted. To see that that was possible and that some girls want that is so important, I think. You know, I think my mom said, Liz, why don't you want like this? You I'm know? imagining the party favors. Exactly, as right? Yeah. You know, like thinking back, would have been a great idea here. I said, Ma, because I've been initiated every day. And I felt like, I, you know, and looking back, that's true. It was like, I feel acknowledged for who I'm becoming by you. So just personally, I don't want to put it on display, you know. Hmm. To me, my period's kind of a private thing. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of girls feel that way. Some not. Some like to shout it to the skies, you know, yeah. I need a tampon, you know. But for me, it was more private. And that was enough. I felt that my change, which for me was quite inner, actually, it was more of an inner change, was acknowledged, mirrored, met, mm. really. And you adults. wanted strawberries for breakfast. I had strawberries for breakfast. I had a red-themed breakfast. Beautiful. <laughs> Very private, but perfect. <laughs> and roses. Exactly. Now, I just want to ask you one final question. I have no doubt that any mother-daughter pair who read this book, Mothering and Daughtering, together or read it separately and talk about it when they're on a camping trip together, <laughs> I have no doubt they will be deeply changed through the process of reading this book. I, I'll put a guarantee on it. I'm curious to know how the process of teaching workshops together and writing this book has changed you, hmm. has changed the two of you and your relationship. Oh, gosh, so much. I say this book grew me because it did. I started writing this book when I was a teenager and I'm a young woman now. You know, I look when I first wrote... In my chapter, one of my chapters, my chapter two, I say, you know, I don't know when I'm going to be a woman. All I know is that I'm not one now. And I've kept that part, even though I feel like something has shifted. And it was because of the book. You know, it's one of the most um, blessed experiences to say, you know, Eliza, what do you think a teenage girl needs to know? And guess what? I figured it out. I figured out what I think. And it's in a book, you know? <laughs> who who would have thunk? <laughs> uh, it's one of the be- biggest, most wonderful mysteries of my life. It's great. Hmm. Oh, gosh, Tammy. <laughs> my cup runneth over. I, I feel um, this is such a labor of love. Uh, initially, in when I was teaching the workshops when, I was, when Eliza was 15, 16, um, I was carrying more, just like in the mothering role. Um, I was doing more of the holding in the workshop because she was... I don't know how she fully did it. (laughs) Um, But she was so naturally skilled and tuned towards these girls. Uh, uh, Even... uh, It was just... uh, It has been such a blessing. I've healed so much in working with her 
along this path uh, as a daughter and a mother. And I'd say for our relationship, I mean, that's one of the interesting things. People say, how the heck do you work with your mom? Oh, and uh, gosh, I think actually Teaching Together has been one of the best things for our relationship because, first of all, it's taken my mom off a pedestal into a real human being. You know, I have spent so much time with her, you know, pushing back and forth between the nitty-gritty details of whether it's a schedule or it's a book page, you know. And um, she's become a real living, breathing human who I have a relationship with that has taken itself out of just my mother. And she's become a real friend, you know. And that's what I hope that in the adult years so many of these teenage girls can get to, you know. Of course, she's always going to be my mom. I'm never going to detach from that one. I wouldn't want to. You know, she's a great mom, you know. And she's got that mother energy. Who doesn't want to be held by the mother, archetypal or real sometimes. But she's become a friend. And, um, I mean, also getting to teach with your mother, my mom is such a skilled teacher that seeing her teach is actually one of the best blessings. It's like going to work with your mom and seeing what a rock star she is and being like, oh, duh, you know, my mom's the coolest, you know, what mom could do that? And, uh, as a teenage girl, as sarcastic as I was, still am, it made me fall in love with her all over again. It was kind of like, oh, my mom. Wow. Wow. I hope I can do that someday, you know? So. That's kind of how that part clicked. I've been speaking with Eliza and Syl Reynolds. They have worked together to create a new book called Mothering and Daughtering, Keeping Your Bond Strong Through the Teen Years. And this really is a type of go-to book, I was going to say Bible, for mothers and daughters working through age 10 to 20, <laughs> the, the teenage years, the challenges that come with it. So beautiful, so helpful, so practical. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you, Sally. <laughs> Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.